We're in a series that we're calling FaceTime, Conversations with Jesus. And the whole point of the series is that as we read through the Gospels, we see account after account of Jesus interacting, Jesus encountering different people, and their lives are forever changed because of those encounters and those conversations. And our goal is that we will be changed, that we'll experience some of that transformation as we encounter Jesus through those accounts that our lives will be different as well. Well, I spent a few days this past week at Harvey Cedars on Long Beach Island. So I was kind of in beach mode most of the week. I kind of scrapped my original plans and came up with the plan, we're gonna look at a beach conversation because I love the beach. I'm not sure if you do, the warm sand, the pounding surf, the crowded boardwalk, the fresh seafood, the relaxed atmosphere. Oh, excuse me, see, I was drifting off a little bit. Our encounter that we're gonna look at this morning is not a beach scene on vacation, and it's not at Ocean City or LBI, it's a beach scene at SOG, Sea of Galilee. And we're gonna look at a beach scene where Jesus encounters and has a conversation with Peter that radically changes the trajectory of Peter's life. I'm gonna ask you to do a little something before I read the passage. Every biblical writer was very, very selective. Just like when you come back from vacation and somebody asks you, so how was your vacation? You very carefully select a couple of things that you'll tell that person. You don't walk through every little detail of the vacation. It would take you a week to tell them what happened in a week. So you're very selective. Well, the gospel writers also have to do that. In fact, John, gospel writer John, tells us that in chapter 20 of his book. He says, Jesus did many, many, many other things, but I recorded these things so that you would know Jesus and have life in his name. You'd believe in him. So here's my question. As I read through the beginning part of John 21, I want you to ask yourself and try to answer, so why did John include this? Why of all of the stuff he could have written about, why did he choose to write about this incident? Well, with that in mind, grab your Bibles or your phone or your tablet, whatever you use to kind of read, and let's read the first uh, 20 verses or so of John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off, jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, 
But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Now this was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And that's kind of an interesting account. Why do you think John not only included it, but put it right at the end of his gospel, almost as if before you close the book, there are the last thoughts and that's the last story bouncing around in your brain. Why is this so significant? Well, we're gonna kind of work our way through and hopefully you're gonna see, you are gonna see, cause I'm gonna tell you right now. <laughs> we see in this account, our three values in crystal clear fashion. I won't ask you what our values are, but we're gonna walk through and see them, maybe be reminded of them at the end. You see right up front, the value of community. Community is all over this thing. There are seven disciples, we're told in the early part there, seven disciples, and they're together and they go fishing. Now, let, let me read you the verse just to make sure you know. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. That is important. After together comes a period as in, that's the end of the sentence. It doesn't say they were together in order to, they were together because of, they were together, no, they were together, period. They were together. Do you think uh, Peter said, well, I feel like going fishing. And the other six guys said, what a coincidence. We feel like going fishing too. Since all seven of us feel like going fishing, let's go fishing together. It doesn't say that. Here's my guess. Some of the seven didn't want to go fishing, but they did want to be together and they had to work at being together. You ever notice how that works? If we're going to be together, if we're going to experience community, and we talk a lot about community at Calvary Church, I'm going to tell you the truth. We're going to have to want to be together and we're going to have to work at being together. I'm guessing if we were to ask those seven what do you feel like doing this day? Peter would have said, I feel like going fishing. And nobody said, I feel like taking a nap on the beach. I feel like reading a book. I feel like going over here. I feel like throwing a ball on the beach. I feel like playing Frisbee. But, but they all went fishing, not because they all wanted to. They all went fishing because they wanted to be together. And probably six of them had to give up their preferences and their interests and what they wanted to do in order to be together. We got to want to be together and we have to work at being together. And my guess is, not all seven got their priorities met. Not all seven got the items of their agenda accomplished. But their number one priority was they wanted to be together and they had to sacrifice and pay the price in order to be together. 
Now, some of you have probably noticed that we don't have the, the people in the sections anymore with red shirts that say, ask me. We call them section leaders. That's not because we kind of retired section leaders, tried that, we're done. No, no, no. We will relaunch section leaders uh, the middle of September, and there'll be some slight changes. But uh, I'm going to tell you, part of the reason we have section leaders is that we need to be in community. And the people in your section are not going to be exactly like you. They don't have your same interests. But in order for section leaders, and in order for, uh, to be successful, and in order for sections to become communities, we've got to want to be together and we have to work at being together. Now, here's another question. If somebody asks me, this happens occasionally, but I usually say no, so I don't get asked anymore. But here's how it used to go. Charles, would you like to go fishing? Have you ever been asked that? What is my question that I immediately ask when I am asked, do I want to go fishing? My question is, who's going? Who's going? Because I know, you know what, I hate not catching fish. Like, you don't go fishing if you're not catching anything. That's the most boring thing in the world. But if you're on kind of a little boat or if you're standing on a pier and you don't like the people you're with, that's going to make an extra long day. Well, that raises a question. What do we know about these seven? Did they want to be together because they were just like each other? We don't know a lot about a lot of the disciples, but let me share with you a little bit about some that we know. How about Nathaniel? Here's what I think about Nathaniel, words that I would put over Nathaniel's life. Nathaniel was gullible and naive, like some of you, gullible and naive. You could easily sell Nathaniel something that he didn't want to buy. That, that's Nathaniel. There's an example right at the beginning of John's gospel that kind of clues us into that. Um, somebody wants to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus. And so go, Nathaniel, and he says, can any good thing come out of Galilee? Jesus shows up and he says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathaniel immediately says, Jesus, you are king of Israel. What the heck was he doing under the fig tree that Jesus saw? What? I mean, Jesus just says, hey, yeah, I saw you under the fig. You are the king of Israel, Jesus. That's a little naive, right? a little gullible. Jesus could have sold him something. He just says, I saw you under the fig tree. He now thinks Jesus is the king of Israel. How about Thomas? He's in a, is Thomas naive and gullible? No, no, no. Thomas is a cynic. Thomas doesn't believe anything. In fact, the account a little further says this. Thomas says, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and the wound in his side. In fact, I don't want to see it unless I put my finger in those holes and my fist in his side, I'm not going to believe it. That's not seeing somebody under the fig tree. This guy needs empirical evidence, right? And I don't know about you. Have you ever thought about this? Thomas is really lucky. How did Thomas know that resurrected bodies still have wounds? Like, what if God decided, I'm going to give you a resurrection body. It's not going to have any scars. Boy, Thomas would have been up a crick, right? Um, he wants hard evidence. Well, suppose resurrected bodies don't have the evidence. Well, here's the point. Usually, Nathaniel's gullible, naive guys, they usually don't hang out with cynics, right? They kind of look down their noses at each other, kind of fight with each other. Oh, here's another one. Um, how about John? John is thoughtful. John is careful. John is reflective. And we could tease out a lot of evidence, but let me just mention this. John's gospel is by far the last published. John's gospel didn't kind of come online until like the early 90s, because he was thinking about it. He's reflecting on it, right? He's kind of putting it together. It's never quite ready for publication. You, you, some of you are like, it's never quite ready. Um, and also, 
the other gospels, they all came out early. John is, John's is much later. And John doesn't just repeat a lot of that other data. It's much more thoughtful. It's kind of reflective. He's putting together the pieces in ways that the other gospel writers didn't. That's John, reflective and careful. Is Peter reflective and careful? Uh, no. Peter is impulsive and a big mouth. That's what he is. He speaks before he thinks. In fact, when it comes to the gospels, most believe that Peter is the apostle behind the gospel of Mark. And if you read Mark, it kind of sounds like Peter, right? Immediately we did this, immediately we did that. Interestingly, what was the first gospel published? Mark, because Peter couldn't wait to get the word out, right? So here we have reflective John. We have a immediate Peter. Usually those two guys don't hang together. Peters often think that, you know, John types are, you know, kind of lazy and they never get anything done. And the John types think Peter are too impulsive. They're kind of running off the handle. It's ready, fire, aim, making a mess of everything. They usually don't hang together, but here they're in the same boat together. And we also know a little bit of something about the economic situation of things. It is true that Peter and Andrew, their brother, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, two sets of brothers, they, all four of them were fishermen. Talk about about they're all fishermen. But the economic disparity is pretty big. James and John must have been pretty successful at fishing because when you read through the gospels, you discover that they had a fleet of shipping boats and the family had servants. So they must have been really good at fishing. So they accumulated a lot of wealth from fishing. Peter, not so much. In fact, every time we read of Peter going fishing, he never ever catches a fish. Until Jesus shows up, then he usually catches something. But, and so Peter and Andrew, they had like one little boat, right? Probably in debt all the time, they're waiting to pay off the bills. Usually the real wealthy, those at the top of the industrial chart and those at the bottom, usually don't hang out together. Just saying. Those that have a fleet of shipping boats and servants don't hang out with those that are in debt trying to make the last few payments on their little boat. Doesn't happen that way. But they're all in the same boat fishing. We don't know who the other two were. Just suppose, wouldn't it have been like Jesus? Just suppose the other two were Matthew the tax collector working for the Romans and Simon the zealot the terrorists trying to destroy the Romans. Wouldn't that have been fun? The two of them went agreed to go out in the boat, they'll drown each other when they get out there. That's what they want. So who in the world would have put these seven together? They're like nothing like each other. What do they have in common? Only Jesus, only Jesus. Their backgrounds are different, their histories are different, their socioeconomic uh, level is different. Their personalities are different. Everything's different except they have Jesus in common. And Jesus trumps all of those differences. And they want to be together and work at being together as different as they are because what's holding them and binding them together is more significant than all the things that are keeping them apart. In fact, our word here that we're looking at is community. Community does not mean unanimity. It does not mean everybody thinks the same and acts the same and does the same thing. No, community means unity and diversity. Unity of purpose, unity of values, unity of priority, but different skill sets, different personalities, different frameworks, different perspectives. Difference and unity together make community. And the differences are swallowed up in the thing that we have in common. And that thing is Jesus. They wanted to be together. 
and they had to work at being together, as different as they were. Lots of forces pushing them apart. Jesus kept pulling them together. Now, at the risk of appearing very old to you, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you remember old Polaroid photography? Raise your hand. Some of you remember the photography, put the hood over your head, right? The little thing. Sorry. <laughs> well, here's how Polaroid, my grandfather used to have a Polaroid camera. And here's how it worked. It's kind of this big box thing. And you take a picture, a little accordion thing at the front. You take a picture. And then on the side, there was a little white tab, remember? You'd pull out the white tab. And the white tab then meant a black tab came out. Then you grab the black tab and you pulled that out. And on the black, black tab was a picture that was still going to be developed. And you had to take it, you had to shake it, remember, put it under your arm if it was cold, do all kinds of dances with it, you shake, you wait a minute, and then you peel off the picture from the black piece of paper, but you still can't see the picture real well. It's all kind of faded and muted, you can't, and you wait and you wait, and so you, you leave it on the paper for about a minute, put it under your arm, take it, and then you take it off and you wait and you wait, and eventually the picture develops. Hey, Charles, why in the world are you talking about that? Because in that little boat, seven guys that are very different, but they want to be together, and they have to work at being together, we see the undeveloped Polaroid picture of the church. That's the church in that boat, right? Seven people, very, very different. Seven people, very different personalities. Seven people from all different kinds of backgrounds and gift mixes and different likes and dislikes and personalities, but they want to be together and they work at being together because of the one thing they have in common. They have Jesus in common. That's a picture of the church, right? And so here's the point for us. If we're going to experience community as God intends and as the gospel demands, we're going to learn best about the gospel and Jesus as we do it in community. You're going to see things and experience things about God and Jesus that I don't, but I'll learn them through you. And I may experience and learn some things about God and Jesus and the spirit that you don't, and you need kind of me. And together we have those conversations and we mix it up in community and we get to know God better and each other better and we understand community better, but we've got to want it and we've got to work at it or it's not going to happen. We're a little more developed than the seven guys in the boat. Do you want it? Are you willing to work at it? You're going to have opportunities to do that in the next few weeks. You got to want it. You got to work at it, just like the seven did. Well, that's kind of community. What's the second uh, value that comes up? Let's call it change. Change. You ever notice that Peter is a really different guy from beginning to end? When we first meet Peter, he's a big mouth, bossy, um, impulsive braggart. By the time we end our little survey of Peter's life in the book of Acts, he's a little more careful. He's a pretty good student. He's fairly humble. I mean, he's still who he is, but boy, some kind of adjustments have been made, right? Some rough edges have kind of been sanded off a little bit, and Peter's a little more fully developed as we go. Peter changes. But those incidental changes that we see are nothing compared to the real change that we see in Peter. Now, we don't have time to walk through all the details of Peter's change, but I want to call your attention to two incidents. One of them you already know from John 21. There's another incident earlier in Peter's life that sounds exactly like John 21. 
it, it, it's almost identical, except with a very different conclusion. Um, and I'm sure when Jesus is fishing in John 21, after a little while, he, he may be dense, but he has to be thinking of the other one. The first episode happens in Luke chapter five. You can check it out later today. Um, Peter has fished all night and caught nothing. That's, you know, we expect it, right? Peter never catches, fishes all night and catches nothing. Jesus shows up at his boat and he says, hey, Peter, got a great idea. How about if we go fishing? Peter said, look, you're like a carpenter, preacher. What the heck do you know about? We've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. Uh, but you know what? If you really want to go, I'll take you fishing. Jesus gets in the boat. They kind of, in my mind, they row out a little. Oh, here looks like a good spot. Throw the net right here. Now, you do understand, like, under the boat, there's not a right and a left. It's all kind of the same. Under. Throw your net right here. So many fish are soon in the net that the guys in the boat can't even pull it in. It's straining back. They're going to break the ropes trying to pull it in. That sounds a lot like John 21, except for one big difference. In Luke 5, here's what Peter says. Get out of my boat. I'm a sinful man. What? That's not what he says in John 21. In John 21, he dives into the, into the water to get to Jesus faster. In Luke 5, he says, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Whenever I read Luke 5, I often think of a, impersonating a cop. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, suppose you get a uniform, right? Some of you, you get it from the dry cleaner by mistake. You get like a fake badge, put it on, you get the little hat. I mean, you can get away with a lot of stuff if you're, if you're impersonating a cop. You can eat donuts all day. Any problem giving them to you for free. Coffee, hang out. You can drive on the highway. Nobody's going to pull you over. You can intimidate people, kind of walk around the area. Hey, pal, what are you doing in there? Charles, finish that sermon. Let's go. We got to get moving. Um, you, you can intimidate. Nobody's going to bug you until the real cop shows up. And then you're in trouble at that point. I always think about that when I think of Luke chapter 5. Peter's kind of impersonating being in charge of his life in Luke chapter 5. Well, I got this handle. I fished all night. You carpenter, don't tell me what to do. I'll fish when I want to fish. I'll go out here. I'll make my own decisions. All of a sudden, he meets a real cop and he says, uh-oh. No more play. No more pretend. But rather than want to experience the change, he wants to get away. Get away from me. I don't want to be reminded of who I am by knowing who you are. Just get away from me. Huh. What's the difference between Luke 5 and John 21? I'll tell you. The light went on for Peter in between. Somewhere between Luke 5 and John 21, the light goes on and Peter gets it. And here's what he gets. I really am a mess. I really have made terrible decisions. I'm weak and I'm stupid. I'm all of those things. But rather than all of those things disqualifying me, those things make me eligible for salvation that Jesus provides. And so in John 21, he experiences exactly what he experienced in Luke 5. But now rather than wanting to run away or push Jesus away, he dives in and wants to get as close to Jesus as he can. Which of those two are you? Are you more of a Luke 5 kind of person? Hey, Jesus, just get away from me. You remind me of how like dirty I am and stupid I am and simply get away from me. Or are you more, I am all those things and a whole bunch of other things that I don't think about that much. But when I get close to Jesus, I not only know who I am, 
I know that God loves me millions more times than I deserve to be loved. Are you more Luke 5? Are you more John 21? That difference is the ultimate difference that each of us need to experience. Well, what happens at the beach is now pretty pain painful. Between Luke 5 and John 21, Peter experiences the biggest failure of his life. I mean, Peter made lots and lots of mistakes, but the biggest mistake happens between the two. His biggest mistake, he denies that he even knows Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you're king, and he, and he would brag about it. He'd say things like this, Jesus, I know you chose all these other disciples, and none of them have a backbone, but I will even die with you. Whatever it takes, I'm your man. And then Jesus, ah, yeah, Peter, yeah, I hear you. But before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. No way, no way. Je Peter likes to argue with Jesus. Um, well, Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. All the disciples, not just Peter, they all take off. They all run away. But none of them bragged the way Peter did. Peter then sneaks around. He wants to see what's going to happen. And because John is wealthy and well-connected, he gets Peter into the courtyard of the Sanhedrin where the court's being done. And um, where does Peter go? It must have been a cool night. Peter goes over to a fire, kind of warming himself, right? And uh, a slave girl says, I think you were with Jesus. You must be. No, 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 you must be mistaken. You know, little girl, what do you know? I'm not one of his disciples. Then somebody else says, no, 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 your accent gives you away. You're definitely from Galilee, and I think you are a follower. I said I'm not, all right? Somebody else, no, 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 you're with him. I'll be damned, I don't know the man. And then a rooster crowed right about that time, and Peter's heart is dissected, and he wonders if he's ever going to be accepted again. Jesus, his master, his savior, his Lord, all those things, he just denied that he even knew him before all these people. And he runs out of the garden, breaking down in tears and weeping. Now Jesus shows up on the beach. And look at what Peter, it almost seems like Jesus is going to twist the knife a little bit. Where did Peter deny that he knew Jesus at a fire? What does Jesus do? He builds a fire. Peter, just so you remember, I'm going to make a little fire here for you. How many times did you deny me? Three. How many times am I going to ask if you love me? Three. I mean, this is painful even to read, right? What the heck is Jesus doing? You see, Jesus knows something that we forget. You usually have to tear down before you build up. You know that? As long as we're talking about the beach. Isn't it true that most sales at the beach are teardowns? You buy an old property. You don't move in. If you have enough money to buy one of those homes, first thing you do is tear it down. Then you build one with the new conveniences. You build it the way you want. You design it the way you want. You tear down, then build it up. We had that here at Calvary Church a couple weeks ago with the front offices. We used to have front offices that were um, decorated and painted and borders put up in the 1980s, and they looked it. Burgundy, green, borders, really hideous kind of stuff. And so they decided we're going to repaint the offices. The secretaries kept getting nauseous in the offices that were going to get new paint. But before you paint the office, you have to rip off all, you got to tear down before you build up. And they get the border off, they get the paint off, they get the molding off, then they paint, and it looks great now. That's not an invitation to come, but it looks great now. You got to tear down before you build up. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is going to tear down before he builds up. But the goal is building up. It's not tearing down, but you got to tear down before you build up. That's how it goes. And I love what Jesus does. 
He speaks to the sin under all the sins. Let me mention a couple of the sins Peter committed, just in case you didn't. Peter's a liar. Do you know him? I don't know him. Yes, you do. You've been traveling around with him. You know his name. You know his address. Know a lot about him. You've been traveling when he fished in your boat and caught all his feet. You know him and you lied. Yeah, okay. Peter, you're also a coward. That's kind of a sin, right? Being a coward. Just, why are you telling lies? Well, you're telling lies because you're afraid of what's going to happen to you. So you're, you're more concerned with your physical well-being than you are the well-being of the one that they're accusing falsely and are going to execute. You care more about yourself. You're a coward. But Jesus never says, Peter, are you a liar? Never. He never says, Peter, you're a coward. You know what? But that's what we do. That's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus do? He goes after the sin under the sins. He says, uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? Remember Peter's braggadocious claim? These other disciples, you can tell by looking that they're not real serious, but I love you more than, I'll even die for you. So, Peter, do you love me more than these? What, what do you think right now? Do you love me more than these? Jesus goes for the root, not the, fr- not the fruit. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he says, well, feed, feed my lambs. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Because he denied him three times, going to ask him to, Peter, do you love me? Not, not the fruit, the root again. Yes, I love you. Well, then take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? The root, not the fruit. Yes, I love you. And he said, okay, well then feed my sheep. Take care of them. You got to tear down before you build up. That's what Jesus is doing. Which brings us to our third value. So we got community, we've got change, and we've got mission. Here's the mission. Do you love me? Then do something. Isn't that what Jesus says? Do you love me? Yes. Well, then do something. Do you love me? Feed the lambs. Do you love me? Take care of the sheep. Do you love me? Feed the sheep. If you love me, do something. Do you ever notice that love as a motivation and action is living out that motivation always go together? Here's a little test. Don't, don't actually do this. Just think about it. It's a think test, not a real test. I know many of you are married. Keep telling your spouse you love them, but never do anything loving for them. Pretty soon they're not going to believe you. Some of you think, yeah, but that, that's what we've been doing. No, 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 that, that's not the way it goes. Motivation of love leads to action, leads to doing something. And I have to uh, let you know a little, I don't know this firsthand, I read it, so if it's not true, it's not me. If it is true, it's good, I read it. You ever notice that when you feed dogs, they really like you? I mean, dogs like to eat, right? I mean, you give a dog something to eat, that dog is happy, Right? I mean, they don't need a lot of, they don't need to vacation. They don't need to go to the islands. They don't need to, but they like, like, they love to eat. And so if you give a dog scraps from your plate, even if you don't like it, they love that stuff, right? You feed them dinner, you give them bone. They love it, right? And they love you forever for feeding them. Sad to say, even if you feed cats, they kind of like it. Don't ask me why you'd want to, but you can feed cats and they like it. Uh, my youngest daughter has a cat. I think she does that to keep me out of the house. She has a cat, and all she has to do is pick up the cat's dish, and the cat comes running to eat. It's like amazing. And you give a cat treats or cat nib, and cat really likes it. Now, what I've read is owners get something from their dogs and their cats when they feed them, right? And so your dog kind of comes over, and regardless of what's happened to you that day, the dog kind of wags its tail, loving you, hoping to get a free meal, right? Even your cat can kind of give you some strokes. Cat comes up, wants to wipe its face on you, clean up a little bit, maybe purr a little bit, sit on your nose, try to suffocate you, you know, things like that. But here's what the article said. 
When you feed lambs and sheep, what do you get? Nothing. Nothing. No strokes. No pats on the back. No thank yous. No accolades. Nothing. So if you want strokes and if you want accolades and if you want pats on the back, then go feed your dog. But if you want to follow Jesus, then you'll feed and you'll take care of and you'll be loving and serving people, not for the consequences that they give you, not for the pats on the back, not for the accolades, not for the well dones, not for the strokes that they give you. You do it because you're motivated by the one that loved you and you're loving him by now loving other people. That's what John's saying. Here's what I think. The synoptic gospels, they're the ones that are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic, they're very similar, synonymous. All three of those gospels end with the great commission. Words, go and make disciples of all names. Matthew, he's the most famous. Go and make, they all end with words of great commission. John doesn't. John ends with pictures of the great commission. John ends by saying, you're all a bunch of screw ups, but your failures will be swallowed up in grace. And that's what qualifies you to go and feed and love and serve and care for. And our well, our motivation well, gets filled up by the gospel, not by what other people do for us as a result. So look, I'm not sure where God's calling you to serve and love. I'm not sure where he's telling you to feed and take care of. I don't know. Maybe it is in bridge. And so maybe you need to stop at that table and learn it, but maybe that is what he's prompting you to. Or maybe it's in student ministries. We need small group leaders in student ministries. A little bit of change, they're gonna, the small group leaders of those that graduated will stay with, that's a great plan, but we need new small group leaders. Now, maybe that's where you're prompted. Maybe get involved in children's ministry, maybe that. Maybe get involved in women's ministry. Maybe get involved in praying for the people at Calvary Church. Maybe get involved in some missional way in your neighborhood serving your neighbors and your friends, maybe involved in an athletic team or school board. I'm not sure where it is, but I do know this. If you've experienced the love of Jesus and you're appreciative of that love, you will love, serve, tend, feed, care for other people. That's how it goes. So I think the challenge of John 21 is this. Don't be an end user. Be a conduit. Don't be an end user of grace and the gospel and all those good things. Be a conduit experience and extend. So why did John include this in John 21? I don't know. Maybe it was to remind us that we should be living in community. We're gonna to have to want to be together and we're gonna to have to work at, be together, at being together or we're not gonna be together. Change, the spirit really wants to change us. Jesus came to change us. Where are you in that process? And mission? We're called not to be end users, but to now extend as we go continuing what Jesus started. I'd originally thought, oh, here's how I'll end. I'll mention those three that we talked about, right? They're kind of all over John 21. And then I'll ask you, to, so which of those are you terrible at? Work on that, work on that. Pick the three, the one you're good at, good. Continue to be good at that. Pick the one you're not good at and work on that. I'm not gonna do that. Because it's not like a multiple choice. You get to pick the one you wanna do or the one you don't wanna do. My point is, uh, how are you doing at all three? Are you balanced in all three? Are you working and wanting community? How's that coming?
Can you look back a year or so and see changes that have been made in your life by the gospel? If not, that, that's not good. How about mission? Are you feeding, tending, serving, caring for in some context in some way? It's balance. It's not pick one. It's all three. Stand and pray. Father, we're thankful for this picture. Picture of Great Commission. Picture of a diverse, crazy community. Community that has you in common. A picture of transformation and change. Change from the inside out, not the outside in, but the inside out. Change on the inside where we love that produces fruit change on the outside. And all about mission. Motivated by love. But the love isn't do nothing. The love is do something in fitting with what Jesus has done. Lord, help us to do some assessment. May your spirit bring about some change. And may we be a continuing development of the Polaroid of the church that we see in John 21, the full expression in the book of Revelation. We pray in Jesus' name.